Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking with Charmaine Griffiths, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the British Heart Foundation. They're actually celebrating their 60th birthday this year. They were founded in 1961. And Charmaine joined as chief executive in February 2020, had previously been with the organization a little while back as executive director for strategy and performance, went to do a couple of other things, came back, couldn't stay away, and uh, and now joins us today. We're going to be talking about the British Heart Foundation, and we're also going to be talking about three different bits that I think are of particular interest to me and to Charmaine. We're going to be looking at the fact that as we're driving forward to the SDGs for 2030, and the world is in such turmoil, the need is arguably most pronounced now, more than it has ever been. Uh, the, the need for charitable intervention, the need for us to do good. We're also going to try to draw some lessons from the pandemic. Uh, Charmaine is a very interesting character, very diverse background. She trained as a scientist, has a PhD, then later on in life went on to do an MBA at Cranfield, and today joins us with a lot of insight and expertise and experience. So we're going to draw on some of that. What's it like to join the British Heart Foundation as a CEO a month before the madness of lockdown kicks off? So we're going to be looking at that. And then lastly, the power of partnerships, which is really important, really important, I think, for certainly for me. And the British Heart Foundation thrives on the fact that it has some remarkable partnerships as well. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence power consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's a pleasure to welcome onto the show Charmaine Griffiths, Chief Executive Officer of the British Heart Foundation. So, without further ado, Charmaine, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me, Alberto. And what an introduction. Fantastic. We try, we try. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the British Heart Foundation. What's it all about? So the British Heart Foundation is a really special organisation. It was my privilege to rejoin the team last February, as you've mentioned. Um, for six years, it's been at the forefront of funding cardiovascular research and all kinds of research, um, from basic research to clinical trials, looking at the causes of um, cardiovascular disease and those things that might make a difference for heart patients. So it has been at the cutting edge of cardiovascular research for over 60 years and is an absolutely powerful force for driving progress and those discoveries that patients need. It's um, contributed to the discovery of everything from the efficiency of statins to developing pacemakers to um, understanding the kind of biological basis of disease. It's been brilliant. 
It also does much, much more, and it supports the 7.6 million people living in the UK today with cardiovascular disease by providing information and support. We've had a brilliant heart helpline that has been a lifeline for millions and millions of people through the pandemic. We also have wonderful initiatives such as um, getting uh, everybody in the country to learn uh, CPR to save a loved one and, and much more beyond. So we a very special organisation that has been really has research at its heart but is a voice for heart patients and also a power for progress uh, in cardiovascular disease. Excellent. How big is the organization? The organization, um, to give you a sense of scale of the VHF, at the moment we have around 447 million pounds worth of active research commitments across the UK's four nations. Um, and that's powered by a brilliant BHF family of around 4,000 colleagues and 20,000 volunteers who come together tirelessly to raise funds and to, to power that. We're also really privileged to have many partners um, and supporters across, across the UK as well. So partners from the commercial sector, from uh, the academic environment and from government and, and other not-for-profits, um, as well as millions of supporters who trust us with their donations and their time to, to make a difference. Excellent, excellent. So let, let's drill into the, a little bit of those partnerships because I, I think it's really important. Um, you guys are funding at, at around 100 million pounds a year uh, funding research uh, researchers across the uk is that right that's right so at the moment we have just under um half a billion pounds worth of active commitments of projects that are running at the moment but what we try and do is fund uh, around 100 million pounds worth that we can afford of new research every year and that's funding the best talent programs and projects uh, to look at making those discoveries whether it would be around use of data science to treat cardiovascular disease looking at the application of new ai technologies to help diagnose, treat and care for people better, or indeed whether it's looking um, at kind of genetics or um, potential regenerative medicine. So a really brilliant and broad church of, of, of research. And partnerships are critical, not only with the institutions that we fund, our thousands of researchers and their teams at, but also with so many other bodies that can influence either the money we have available to fund that research or in the environment in which it happens. So yeah, we I'm in no doubt, particularly over the last year, but actually throughout my career about the power of partnerships with individuals um, and organisations and alliances that can really kind of accelerate your mission. And for us, that's um, working towards a world free of the heartbreak from heart and circulatory mm. disease. And I mean, you, your partnerships might, must be incredibly diverse. I mean, you, partnerships from anything from people who will help you on the fundraising to people who will help you scout for talent and how do you keep track of all of it? Gosh, well, do you know, the first thing I am is grateful for it. So we have so many partnerships and alliances that make a really, really big difference to, to what we do. So perhaps just to run through a couple of different flavours of those. We're really proud to have some amazing um, corporate partnerships with big commercial entities that help us deliver against our mission. So we have a wonderful one with Tesco's and the, the, the family at Tesco who partner with us and actually Cancer Research UK and Diabetes UK as well to deliver a healthcare-focused partnership that also raises millions of pounds to support our life-saving work. That's fantastic. And um, perhaps at the other end of the scale, we'll have partnerships with local community groups um, who are raising money to fund defibrillators in their community um, and everything in between. And then to move away from fundraising, we also have partnerships with other charities who want the same um, support for patients as we do with government, with, with lots of kind of other public sector not-for-profit groups. 
So very grateful for it is a huge part of the fuel that allows us to make progress. Um, we work hard to make sure that we deliver on our partnerships as an organisation as well, that we manage those well. We've got a brilliant team who do that, whether it be managing corporate partnerships or community engagement. And um, yeah, it's a joy, actually. It's, it's finding people who want the same change in the world as yourself, aligning your kind of mission and objectives and supporting those partnerships well is, is an absolute part of the job that I love. Yeah, that sounds great. And so if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, hmm, that sounds interesting, my company could benefit from exploring this further. How does somebody even begin to explore a, a partnership with, with such a huge organization like yourselves? Oh, Alberto, what a fantastic opener. Well, let me tell you, um, everything you need to know about the British Heart Foundation is on our website. So that's bhf.org.uk. And there's a brilliant page there about our partnerships and how we operate. Um, so whether you're interested in raising funds, as many organisations do, and um, through their charity year partnerships or by fundraising initiatives, or whether you're interested in improving um, the health of your workplace or interested in putting defibrillators that could save someone's life if they have a cardiac arrest, um, we have some fantastic different types of partnerships so please do get in touch and feel free to tweet me get in touch with, um, as you're listening as well we get the wonderful list of approaches what's what's your twitter handle so my handle's at iCharmaine. so please do yeah get in touch follow let me know what you think of this podcast as well alberto ah uh, well you know hint hint everybody listen to the podcast <laughs> And tell me a little bit about your trajectory. So you joined as chief executive right before the pandemic really kicked off. And the world's looked incredibly different ever since. What? Tell me a little bit about that journey. So it was a real heartfelt privilege to rejoin the BHF. It's a very special organization. Um, to, to me, it matters in a number of very personal way. So firstly, my family was affected by um, heart and circulatory disease. I lost both of my grandfathers and a grandmother to heart attacks and stroke. And sadly, um, I have had other loved ones uh, taken since. So it really matters. It's, a, you know, kind of one of those moments in life where the BHF matters to me personally through my lived experience, but also I'm intellectually so stimulated by the work we do. You know, we fund the very best cutting edge research and, and talent to deliver that research. And just um, being part of that and helping fund and fuel it is deeply stimulating on a personal level as well. So it's a real, you know, head and heart moment. So it was absolutely, um, you know, an offer you couldn't refuse in a job you couldn't go to. So rejoining the team in February was fabulous. And I remember that morning so well, Alberto. It was crisp and clear. It was February in London and um, walking across on the 10th of February 2020, the kind of threshold of the British Heart Foundation was just quite emotional and quite exhilarating all at once. Um, and the first couple of weeks were beautiful, a carefully laid out induction plan for the first three or four months the organisation had done looked fabulous. Um, getting to know colleagues and listen to what mattered was wonderful. But by about week two, it became clear that we um, were going to really feel, as everybody in the whole world did, the full force of the pandemic. And so that was a real um, challenge, of course, as uh, a new and incoming chief exec. Um, and one I've learned a lot through, actually. It's, it's not been a year any of us would have wanted, but I have been inspired, touched, motivated on a daily basis by the people in our team and that we, we serve. Um, it's just been phenomenal. So, so you joined 10th of February there, first day. There's all sorts of welcome to the office, greeting cards and all of this utopia. What's been really most challenging for you um, as a manager 
with this whole pandemic? As, and as a, as a new CEO, because this was your first chief executive role. That's correct. So I had the pleasure of being chief operating officer at the Institute of Cancer Research, which is a phenomenal organisation for four years before rejoining the BHF um, last Feb. So you're right, the first couple of weeks were um, absolutely getting to know people, getting as much time with them and contact with colleagues as possible and supporters of the BHF. Um, what was most challenging within four weeks, having to make the decision to, to close and lock down, and we did that earlier than was imposed because of the risk to people with heart and circulatory disease who form a large part of our colleague and volunteer base um, and then getting to know the organization virtually so um, in terms of operating all of the things that you would you know I think all of us have felt this but all of the things you'd normally do to connect with to to listen to people to get to know and be trusted by an organization were um, complicated by, of course, the sheer force of the pandemic and the speed of which you have to respond, decide and act, but also just the physical limitations of having to do everything through video conference. All the little moments, the soft intel, the reassurances that we all give each other, um, obviously we're not um, luxuries at that point, though. you just simply couldn't do them as readily. So a huge challenge was absolutely shifting gear in the face of the pandemic and navigating that and I'm really proud of how we've done that as a BHF but also learning to operate in a digital world without the human contact and interaction that's particularly as you start a new job so vital for building trust and confidence yeah and on top of that I mean the British Heart Foundation has a huge retail operation as well and I imagine that didn't fare very well during the pandemic which in in which in and I guess where I'm driving to is under normal circumstances, if you had to restructure certain things, it would be difficult enough if you had the luxury of being in person, but doing it remotely. Yeah, you're right. So let me tell you a bit about the operational challenges. So we, on the 19th of March, um, closed our kind of uh, offices, knowing that we were entering lockdown slightly early. So that was just over a month after starting. And um, this, to give you a sense of the scale of the impact it had on the BHF, the British Heart Foundation has 730 shops and stores on high streets across the UK's four nations. As I've mentioned already, we fund um, thousands of research projects. But we also have wonderful and much-loved fundraising events in communities. Many of our health um, activities happen within communities and physically. So there was almost no aspect of what we do that was untouched by the pandemic and the physical restrictions that were rightly imposed at that point. So at peak, um, we faced a huge financial challenge um, of losing around £10 million um, a, a month, uh, which is a huge part, as you described, of our, our kind of income and our commitment to, to funding charitable work. But also overnight, we had to switch to working remotely um, uh, for 4,000 colleagues and stay in contact with 20,000 much, much love volunteers. So the kind of logistical impact as well as the financial impact and also dealing and carrying with the emotional impact on the organization of the uncertainty for people and their families and the, the fear that everyone felt at that point as well as the stability of the organization were huge challenges to face but i could not have asked more of our people um truly we've had to make some tough choices um last summer we reduced the operating size of the core organization by around 25 percent to make sure that we maximized and protected our revenues for our charitable work and we didn't have to um, take steps to, to reduce any of our research um, activity and that was incredibly tough because um, we had to say goodbye to much loved colleagues as part of that change so that was incredibly um, tough 
throughout that and since whether there are people who left or people who stayed with the organisation, it's just been phenomenal to see how people have risen to meet every challenge. Um, the innovation, the creativity and the sheer um, commitment to our mission has just been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So the re resilience is there and you would say the impact and effectiveness of the of the organisation is, is very much intact, if, if anything, strengthened. How are you seeing things going forward? And I guess from the managerial perspective, what sort of working environment are you looking to embrace? Are you calling people back into the office? Are you looking to continue completely remotely, a hybrid model? Um, so at the moment, so our stores have been open since the 12th of April. So um, we've had our staff and brilliant volunteers back and uh, helping us trade and recover brilliantly. We had our best ever day on the 12th of April of trading ever, taking over a million pounds in a single day, which is phenomenal. Um, in our offices, we have been operating a hybrid model with restrictions and in line with, gui in line with guidance through the summer. And we are going to be looking at kind of continuing with a hybrid model. It works really well for so many of our staff. Um, we've done what we call a BHF study, as you'd expect a research organisation to do, of, of course. course. Alberto, we asked everyone what they what they would prefer and had, um, and had a really good study actually getting people's feedback, not just on the quantitative stuff, but also what factors were important to them around the more qualitative elements to, to get right. And it's really clear to us that to, to, to be a brilliant BHF and a, a future-proof BHF, that we need to be comfortable and excellent at hybrid working. So like most people, we're learning our way through that, but we have a brilliant programme called Flexibly Connected, which is literally redesigning and reshaping our office environments and changing in some cases the size of the footprint of some of them to make sure that people have what they need um, both at home, but also that we use our offices more as convening spaces for collaboration and creative working, giving people the flexibility where they need it to do the more routine elements they can at home. Because I think we've all learned loads about each other and our families and seen each other inside each other's homes. And, you know, we've, I've had the pleasure of joining meetings with toddlers on knees and, and you know, pets in the background. And we've heard from people how important it is to have um, that time back and not to have to do the commute for the sake of it. So we're really determined to create a model that is um, brilliant for our people because in turn we know it will be brilliant for the BHF. Mm. And I want to ask you about this. The science you're doing and the science you're backing on cardiovascular research is there anything in particular in that in that visible near-term future, uh, which is sort of like a low-hanging fruit, which you think, well, you know, if I were wagering, that's really looking very exciting of the potential to transform millions of lives um, for the better. So many things, Alberto. I could talk all day about this. Let me tell you about one um, initiative that we've got uh, as, as a BHF that I'm, I think is super exciting. So we've got a competition, a global competition called the Big Beat Challenge. And this was a global call to arms to come up with the most transformative ideas um, that could make a leap forward. And it's a £30 million award. So the single biggest award the British Heart Foundation's ever made. Let me do that again. It's the single biggest award the British Heart Foundation's ever made and has attracted interest um, globally, as you can imagine, uh, that's been off the scale and brilliant to see. And we went from a position of having 75 multidisciplinary kind of um, entrants into the competition. And we're in the final straight now with the final four ideas. And if anyone on this call is interested in the best of technology and the best of ideas uh, and looking at how 
um, research can and researchers can assemble themselves around big, big problems. And please do check out the website and the Big Beat Challenge. So they cover areas such as um, uh, the application of technology to heart disease, actually, and genetics, and potentially the curing of um, genetic conditions. To actually looking at robotic hearts, that an absolutely phenomenal um, shortlist of four ideas that we're in the final hurdle of of. Um, selecting through and uh, delighted to see our international advisory panel meeting uh, later this autumn chaired by um, Patrick Balance who's the UK's uh, chief scientific officer to make the decision on which of those we will fund so to give you uh, an example that's just one initiative that we're we're funding at the moment it's just at the cutting edge of big ideas funded and powered by the very best talent excellent excellent and just I, I want to ask you about this very briefly without digressing too much, but it was in the papers the other day. I think it's made by Novartis, um, a, a cholesterol-lowering drug, uh, which is actually injected every six months, and it replaces all the sort of 365 pills that you would take a year to lower your cholesterol. What's the state of affairs um, with, with, with discoveries that are already out there but aren't necessarily readily, readily available within the national health system here in the UK? So the, the vaccination that's been in the media recently is a really good example of um, progress being driven by, um, fun fundamentally driven by academic research and through um, pharma companies that holds huge potential for people, although still needs to be tested and proven in some areas. All the time, there are advances like that happening, whether it be in medication or treatment and diagnosis and care for patients. Um, and so it's it's really exciting to, to see that come through. And as a BHF, we're interested as the patient voice in making sure those things that have the most benefit and are proven to have the most benefit for patients get to, to them quickly. At the moment, there's just so much work to do, and not just in that cutting edge of um, R&D, but also in just recovering from the impact of the pandemic. Um, I'm sad to say that today there are around a quarter of a million people on waiting lists for heart treatment and care that have been impacted by um, the diversion, of course, of workforce and attention to dealing with COVID-19. And we're deeply worried that we might end up in a worse situation if we don't invest properly in the right kind of workforce support and the right um, financial support for that kind of treatment and care for patients. In fact, we did some recent modelling that um, painted a a number of scenarios and one of them that particularly concerns me is that if we don't invest now in cardiac care and treatment we might end up with half a million people on a waiting list by January 2024 and we already know that thousands of lives um, have been impacted and that potentially thousands of lives have been lost that could have been avoided had treatment and care been available to people readily through the pandemic. So one of the things that's keeping me up at night in the organisation um, up at night at the moment is how, how do we look after the quarter of a million people on that waiting list and make sure they have the care and support and ultimately the treatment that they need. Mm. And I know you have you embrace a healthy sense of urgency, and that's what we started off with the podcast as well, about the time is now to take action. There's so much need. And you're highlighting a little bit of the need from within the sort of cardiovascular sphere. But as, a, as someone who's running a major nonprofit, what's, what's your thinking? What's, um, give us a flavor of how you're feeling about the state of affairs and, and what we need to do to improve it. So I know the work of the BHF has never been more needed than it is right now. And that is to help that the people who've been affected by the pandemic and people with heart and circulatory disease who have um, suffered more um, because of COVID-19 
and that quarter of a million people on the waiting list right now for treatment and care. So the sense of urgency is absolutely real. It's it's a um, huge focus for us as an organisation. And also turning to our research pipeline, we know from 60 years of proven track record how important it is to keep funding the best talent with the best ideas to make sure we're driving the next medicines, the next interventions, the next care um, uh, levels for, for people with heart circulatory disease. And a drop-off from 100 to 50 million pounds of new research every year is dramatic. So we are, are the nation's largest independent funder of cardiovascular disease research, funding over 55% um, of all independent um, research. So a drop in our income of that scale is profound for the community. So the urgency for us to recover support and recover um, funding for, for researchers is, is really real. Um, I think across the sector as well, um, it's my privilege to be chair of the Cranfield Trust, um, which is a wonderful organisation that marries um, people with commercial and business experience, consultancy experience with small charities. And they do a fabulous job at, at across all kind of sectors and areas. It's, it's wonderful to see. And hearing from the team at the Cranfield Trust, but also the, the charities they work with, how much pressure there is in a post-pandemic environment where we're seeing that demand for services and support for people has never been higher just at the time when most people are taking a financial hit as, as absolutely cemented again my belief that not only is the charitable sector or generally the kind of public sector um, doing a phenomenal job but it's just never been more needed than right now. Mm. One thing I want to throw in there and it'll sort of um, one thing I read was that um, through Glassdoor the um, sort of rating uh, platform, as it were, of, of employers that are viewed very favorably by their staff. You were, you came across the f top 50 CEOs. You, you, you were listed as one of the top 50 CEOs. I think you were in the top five in the UK. Also, the only charity CEO and the only woman CEO, if, if I can believe that. Uh, so you had a 98% approval rating, I think, from your staff. What's the secret sauce? Oh, the secret sauce is just choosing the right organisation, my goodness. Say again, the BHF is incredibly special. There is something in the DNA of the BHF that I just love. It draws the very best people and talent to a cause that touches so many of us and our families. Um, and I've been a, you know, it's been a real privilege not only to be part of BHF for 12 years between 2003 and 15, but then to rejoin. And part of the reason for coming back is there's just something magic about it. The combination of mission and talent and people's commitment is just phenomenal. And that goes from our trustees to our staff, to our volunteers. It just runs through the organisation brilliantly. So the secret source is actually the organisation. And obviously it's hugely flattering and um and lovely to to have had that feedback particularly because it's from colleagues i think that's what made it really um particularly uh, special to read about which is great and in the pandemic year of course when we've gone through such a journey we've had to restructure resize and do things differently that really mattered and um yeah it was a huge uh, hugely lovely to to read i would say i was also surprised that i was the only women in the top 50 and as the first female chief executive of the British Heart Foundation in 60 years I'm proud to be representing both the charity sector and women on the list and I can't wait until there are 24 other women on that list next year let's yeah. let's hope Alberta. if not more if not more <laughs> exactly the um so unfair for me to ask you because there may not be a clear-cut dichotomy here but 
if you were choosing between being a scientist and a manager, because I think you probably do both very well, but you have a PhD, you're a scientist, and you also have this MBA, where do you draw? And I, now I'm not going to say where I see you sort of wavering towards, but where do you see yourself? Where do you identify most if, if there is one of those two, the more out of those two? Oh, tough question, Alberto. I um, I think it's a mix, and that's not me being political. I love the science because it it's um, intellectually stimulating. I love discovery, love learning new things. I always have in my life, and and science is the business of that. So it's, it's discovering new things. It's it's wonderful. So that's um, that's definitely my where my head uh, and my intellectual stimulation comes from. The organisation has got such huge heart and it means something so personally to me that in terms of using my skills as a leader and a manager to make the most of the talent and resources that we have and support the organisation, that means a lot to me personally as well. So um, my simple answer, and it's not dodging the question, it's genuine, it's, it's a mix of both. It's it's very special organisation and it definitely does both head and heart for me. Yeah. I guess we can reconcile the two by saying we can focus on management science. <laughs> There's a science to that, isn't there? There is indeed. There is. There is. Um, what's that? Uh, what's that final key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? So I'm going to be sneaky and put in two. Albert, Excellent. Eh? That's what we like. Go. So the the first is. Um, Hopefully it's been interesting to hear a little bit about my journey and the BHF's journey over the last year. If there's any way in which you think we could support your organisation or indeed you ours, then please do get in touch via the website or via Twitter. And also, um, I think just uh, I would like to say thank you actually to everybody who's working in in organisations that are helping make a difference at this point. I think I've been so impressed and inspired and supported actually by partner organisations, by our brilliant colleagues and volunteers. So my goodness, it's not a year any of us would have wanted, but I think we're coming through it and we're coming through it stronger and with some excitement and optimism for the future that I'm really, really drawn to. So I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's been part of that journey and is making a difference today. Excellent. I love it. Charmaine, it has been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to share your experiences and expertise with us. Great to speak with you, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to a great conversation with Charmaine Griffiths, Chief Executive Officer of the British Heart Foundation. For information on this episode and a hundred others with remarkable thought leaders, please visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Do leave us a review if you enjoy the show, and we'll catch you next week.